I've got an exciting announcement for all you wonderful Send Me to Sleep listeners. Our back catalogue is now publicly available and completely free. You can listen to all our episodes, even the ones that used to be premium exclusives. This includes voice-only episodes and wonderful books like The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more. So please do go back and find a brand new story to help you get a great sleep tonight. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 18 and 19 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 18 Vronsky followed the guard to the carriage, and at the door of the compartment he stopped short to make room for a lady who was getting out. With the insight of a man of the world, from one glance at this lady's appearance, Vronsky classified her as belonging to the best society. He begged pardon and was getting into the carriage, but felt he must glance at her once more. Not that she was very beautiful, not on account of the elegance and modest grace which were apparent in her whole figure, but because in the expression of her charming face as she passed close by him, there was something peculiarly caressing and soft. As she looked round, she too turned her head. Her shining grey eyes, that looked dark from the thick lashes, rested with friendly attention on his face, as though she were recognising him, and then, promptly, turned away to the passing crowd, as though seeking someone. In that brief look, Vronsky had time to notice the suppressed eagerness which played over her face, and flitted between the brilliant eyes and the faint smile that curved her red lips. It was as though her nature was so brimming over with something that against her will it showed itself now in the flash of her eyes and now in her smile. Deliberately she shrouded the light in her eyes, but it shone against her will in the faintly perceptible smile. Vronsky stepped into the carriage, his mother, a dried-up old lady with black eyes and ringlets, screwed up her eyes, scanning her son. 
and smiled slightly with her thin lips. Getting up from the seat and handing her maid a bag, she gave her little wrinkled hand to her son to kiss, and lifting his head from her hand, kissed him on the cheek. You got my telegram. Quite well. Thank God. You had a good journey, said her son, sitting down beside her and involuntarily listening to a woman's voice outside the door. He knew it was the voice of the lady he had met at the door. All the same, I don't agree with you, said the lady's voice. It's the Petersburg view, madame. Not Petersburg, but simply feminine, she responded. Well, well, allow me to kiss your hand. Goodbye, Ivan Petrovich, and could you see if my brother is here and send him to me, said the lady in the doorway, and stepped back again into the compartment. Well, have you found your brother, said Countess Vronskia, addressing the lady. Vronsky understood now that this was Madame Karenina. Your brother is here, he said, standing up. Excuse me, I did not know, and, indeed, our acquaintance was so slight, said Vronsky, bowing, that no doubt you do not remember me. Oh no, she said, I could have known you because your mother and I have been talking, I think, of nothing but you all the way. As she spoke, she let the eagerness that would insist on coming out show itself in her smile. And still no sign of my brother. Do call him Alexei, said the old countess. Vronsky stepped out into the platform and shouted, Oblonsky, here. Madame Karenina, however, did not wait for her brother, but catching sight of him, she stepped out with her light, resolute step. And as soon as her brother had reached her, with a gesture that struck Vronsky by its decision and its grace, she flung her left arm around his neck, drew him rapidly to her, and kissed him warmly. Vronsky gazed never taking his eyes from her, and smiled. He could not have said why, but recollecting that his mother was waiting for him, he went back again into the carriage. She's very sweet, isn't she? said the countess of Madame Karenina. Her husband put her with me, and I was delighted to have her. We've been talking all the way, and so, I hear, 
Vous filez le parfait amour. Tant mieux, mon cher, tant mieux. I don't know what you're referring to, maman, he answered coldly. Come, maman, let us go. Madame Karenina entered the carriage again to say goodbye to the countess. Well, countess, you have met your son, and I my brother, she said, and all my gossip is exhausted. I should have nothing more to tell you. Oh no, said the countess, taking her hand. I could go all around the world with you and never be dull. You are one of those delightful women in whose company it's sweet to be silent as well as to talk. Now please, don't fret over your son. You can't expect never to be parted. Madame Karenina stood quite still, holding herself erect, and her eyes were smiling. Anna Arkadyevna, the countess said in explanation to her son, has a little son, eight years old, I believe and she has never been parted from him before, and she keeps fretting over leaving him. Yes, the countess and I have been talking all the time, I of my son, and she of hers, said Madame Karenina, and again a smile lighted up her face, a caressing smile intended for him. I am afraid that you must have been dreadfully bored, he said, promptly catching the ball of crockery she had flung at him, but apparently she did not care to pursue the conversation in that strain, and she turned to the old countess. Thank you so much. The time has passed so quickly. Goodbye, Countess. Goodbye, my love, answered the Countess. Let me have a kiss of your pretty face. I speak plainly at my age, and I tell you simply that I've lost my heart to you. Stereotyped as the phrase was, Madame Karenina obviously believed it and was delighted by it. She flushed, bent down slightly, and put her cheek to the countess's lips, drew herself up again, and with the same smile fluttering between her lips and her eyes, she gave her hand to Vronsky. He presented the little hand she gave him, and was delighted, as though at something special, by the energetic squeeze with which she freely and vigorously shook his hand. She went out with the rapid step which bore her rather fully developed figure with such strange lightness. Very charming 
said the countess. That was just what her son was thinking. His eyes followed her till her graceful figure was out of sight, and then the smile remained on his face. He saw out of the window how she went up to her brother, put her arms in his, and began telling him something eagerly, obviously something that had nothing to do with him, Vronsky, and at that he felt annoyed. Well, Maman, are you perfectly well? he repeated, turning to his mother. Everything has been delightful. Alexander has been very good, and Marie has grown very pretty. She's very interesting. And she began telling him again of what interested her most, the christening of her grandson, for which she had been staying in Petersburg, and the special favour shown her elder son by the Tsar. Here's Lavrenti, said Vronsky, looking out of the window. Now we can go, if you like. The old butler had travelled with the countess, came to the carriage to announce that everything was ready, and the countess got up to go. Come. There's not such a crowd now, said Vronsky. The maid took a handbag and the lapdog, the butler and a porter the other baggage. Vronsky gave his mother his arm, but just as they were getting out of the carriage, several men ran suddenly by panic-stricken faces. The station master, too, ran by in his extraordinary coloured cap. Obviously something unusual had happened. The crowd who had left the train were running back again. What? What? Where? Flung himself. Crushed, was heard among the crowd. Stepan Arkadyevich with his sister on his arm, turned back. They too looked scared, and stopped at the carriage door to avoid the crowd. The ladies got in, while Vronsky and Stepan Arkadyevich followed the crowd to find out details of the disaster. A guard, either drunk or too much muffled up in the bitter frost, had not heard the train move back and had been crushed. Before Vronsky and Oblonsky came back, the ladies heard the fact from the butler. Oblonsky and Vronsky had both seen the mutilated corpse. Oblonsky was evidently upset. He frowned and seemed ready to cry. Ah! How awful! Ah, Anna, if you had seen it! Ah, how awful! he said. Vronsky 
did not speak. His handsome face was serious, but perfectly composed. Oh, if you had seen it, Countess, said Stepan Arkadyevitch. And his wife was there. It was awful to see her. She flung herself on the body. They say he was the only support of an immense family. How awful. Couldn't one do anything for her, said Madame Karenina in an agitated whisper. Vronsky glanced at her and immediately got out of the carriage. I'll be back directly, Maman, he remarked, turning round in the doorway. When he came back a few minutes later, Stepan Arkadyevitch was already in conversation with the Countess about the new singer, while the Countess was impatiently looking toward the door, waiting for her son. Now let us be off, said Vronsky, coming in. They went out together. Vronsky was in front with his mother. Behind walked Madame Karenina with her brother. Just as they were going out of the station, the station master overtook Vronsky. You gave my assistant two hundred roubles. Would you kindly explain for what benefit you intend them? For the widow, said Vronsky, shrugging his shoulders. I should have thought there was no need to ask. You gave that, cried Oblonsky behind, and, pressing his sister's hand, he added, Very nice, very nice. Isn't he a splendid fellow? Goodbye, Countess. And he and his sister stood still, looking for her maid. When they went out, the Voronsky's carriage had already driven away. People coming in were still talking of what happened. What a horrible death, said a gentleman passing by. They say he was cut in two pieces. On the contrary, I think it's the easiest, instantaneous, observed another. How is it they don't take proper precautions, said a third. Madame Karenina seated herself in the carriage, and Stepan Arkadyevitch saw with surprise that her lips were quivering, and she was with difficulty restraining her tears. What is it, Anna? he asked when they had driven a few hundred yards. It's an omen of evil, she said. What nonsense, said Stepan Arkadyevitch. You've come, that's the chief thing. You can't conceive how I'm resting my hopes on you. Have you known Vronsky long? she asked. Yes, you know we're hoping he will marry Kitty. Yes, said Anna softly. 
Come now, let us talk of you, she added, tossing her head, as though she would physically shake off something superfluous oppressing her. Let us talk of your affairs. I got your letter, and here I am. Yes, all my hopes are in you, said Stepan Narkadjevich. Well, tell me all about it. And Stepan Arkadyevich began to tell his story. On reaching home, Oblonsky helped his sister out, sighed, pressing her hand, and set off to his office. Chapter 19 When Anna went into the room, Dolly was sitting in the little drawing room with a white-headed, fat little boy, already like his father, giving him a lesson in French reading. As the boy read, he kept twisting and trying to tear off a button that was nearly off his jacket. His mother had several times taken his hand from it, but the fat little hand went back to the button again. His mother pulled the button off and put it in her pocket. Keep your hand still, Grisha, she said, and she took up her work, a coverlet she had long been making. She always set to work on it at depressed moments, and now she knitted at it nervously, twitching her fingers and counting the stitches. Though she sent word the day before to her husband that it was nothing to her whether his sister came or not, she had made everything ready for her arrival and was expecting her sister-in-law with emotion. Dolly was crushed by her sorrow, utterly swallowed up by it. Still, she did not forget that Anna, her sister-in-law, was the wife of one of the most important personages in Petersburg, and was a Petersburg grand dame. And, thanks to this circumstance, she did not carry out her threat to her husband. That is to say, she remembered that her sister-in-law was coming. And, after all, Anna is in no wise to blame, Dolly thought. I know nothing of her except the very best, and I have seen nothing but kindness and affection from her towards myself. It was true that as far as she could recall, her impressions at Petersburg at the Karenins, she did not like their household itself. There was something artificial in the whole framework of their family life. But why should I not receive her? if only she doesn't take it into her head to console me, thought Dolly. 
all consolation and counsel and Christian forgiveness, all that I have thought over a thousand times, and it's all no use. All these days Dolly had been alone with her children. She did not want to talk of her sorrow, but with that sorrow in her heart, she could not talk of outside matters. She knew that in one way or another, she would tell Anna everything, and she was alternately glad at the thought of speaking freely, and angry at the necessity of speaking of her humiliation with her, his sister, and of hearing her ready-made phrases of good advice and comfort. She had been on the lookout for her, glancing at her watch every minute, and, as so often happens, let slip just that minute when her visitor arrived, so that she did not hear the bell. Catching a sound of skirts and light steps at the door, she looked round, and her careworn face unconsciously expressed not gladness, but wonder. She got up and embraced her sister-in-law. What? Here already? she said as she kissed her. Dolly, how glad I am to see you. I am glad too, said Dolly, faintly smiling and trying by the expression of Anna's face to find out whether she knew. Most likely she knows, she thought, noticing the sympathy in Anna's face. Well, come along, I'll take you to your room. She went on, trying to defer as long as possible the moment of confidence. Is this Grisha? Heavens, how he's grown, said Anna, and kissing him, never taking her eyes off Dolly. She stood and flushed a little. No, please, let us stay here. She took off her kerchief and her hat, and catching it in a lock of her black hair, which was a mess of curls, she tossed her head and shook her hair down. You are radiant with health and happiness, said Dolly, almost with envy. I, yes, said Anna. Merciful heavens, Tanya, you're the same age as my Sarosia, she added, addressing the little girl as she ran in. She took her in her arms and kissed her. Delightful child, delightful, show me them all. She mentioned them, not only remembering the names, but the years, months, characters, illnesses of all the children, and Dolly could not but appreciate that. Very well. We will go to them, she said. It's a pity Versailles is asleep. 
After seeing the children, they sat down, alone now, in the drawing room, to coffee. Anna took the tray, and then pushed it away from her. Dolly, she said, he has told me. Dolly looked coldly at Anna. She was waiting now for phrases of conventional sympathy, but Anna said nothing of the sort. Dolly, dear, she said, I don't want to speak for him to you, nor to try to comfort you. That's impossible. But, darling, I'm simply sorry. Sorry from my heart for you. Under the thick lashes of her shining eyes, tears suddenly glittered. She moved nearer to her sister-in-law and took her hand in her vigorous little hand. Dolly did not shrink away, but her face did lose its frigid expression. She said, To comfort me is impossible. Everything's lost after what has happened. Everything's over. And directly she had said this, her face suddenly softened. Anna lifted the wasted thin hand of Dolly, kissed it and said, But Dolly, what's to be done? What's to be done? How is it best to act in this awful position? That's what you must think of. All's over, and there's nothing more, said Dolly. And the worst of all is, you see, that I can't cast him off. There are the children. I am tied to him. And I can't live with him. It's a torture to see him. Dolly, darling, he has spoken to me, but I want to hear it from you. Tell me about it. Dolly looked at her inquiringly. Sympathy and love unfeigned were visible on Anna's face. Very well, she said all at once. But I will tell you it from the beginning. You know how I was married. With the education Mama gave us, I was more than innocent. I was stupid. I knew nothing. I know they say men tell their wives of their former lives. But Steva, she corrected herself. Stepan Arkadyevich told me nothing. You'll hardly believe it, but till now I imagined that I was the only woman he had known. So I lived eight years. You must understand that I was so far from suspecting infidelity, I regarded it as impossible. And then, try to imagine it, with such ideas, to find out suddenly all the horror, all the loathsomeness. You must try and understand me. To be fully convinced of one's happiness, and all at once, 
continued Dolly, holding back her sobs. To get a letter, his letter to his mistress, my governess. No, it's too awful. She hastily pulled out her handkerchief and hid her face in it. I can understand being carried away by feeling, she went on after a brief silence, but deliberately, slyly deceiving me, and with whom, to go on being my husband together with her. It's awful, you can't understand. Oh yes, I understand, I understand. Dolly dearest, I do understand, said Anna, pressing her hand. And do you imagine he realizes all the awfulness of my position? Dolly resumed. Not in the slightest. He's happy and contented. Oh no, Anna interposed quickly. He's to be pitied. He's weighed down by remorse. Is he capable of remorse? Dolly interrupted, gazing intently into her sister-in-law's face. Yes, I know him. I could not look at him without feeling sorry for him. We both know him. He's good-hearted, but he's proud. And now he's so humiliated. What touches me most, and here Anna guessed what would touch Dolly most, he's tortured by two things, that he's ashamed for the children's sake, and that, loving you, yes, yes, loving you beyond everything on earth, she hurriedly interrupted Dolly, who would have answered, He has hurt you, pierced you to the heart. No, no, she cannot forgive me. He keeps saying. Dolly looked dreamily away beyond her sister-in-law as she listened to her words. Yes, I can see that his position is awful. It's worse for the guilty than the innocent, she said. If he feels that all the misery comes from his fault. But how am I to forgive him? How am I to be his wife again after her? For me to live with him now would be torture. Just because I love my past love for him. And sobs cut short her words. But as though of set design. Each time she was softened, she began to speak again of what exasperated her. She's young, you see. She's pretty, she went on. Do you know, Anna, my youth and my beauty are gone. Taken by whom? By him and his children. I have worked for him and all I had has gone in his service, and now of my course any fresh, vulgar creature has more charm for him. 
no doubt they talk of me together, or, worse still, they were silent. Do you understand? Again her eyes glowed with hatred. And after that he will tell me, what, can I believe him? Never. No, everything is over. Everything that once made my comfort, the reward of my work and my sufferings. Would you believe it? I was teaching Grisha just now. Once this was a joy to me. Now it is a torture. What have I to strive and toil for? Why are the children here? What's so awful is that all at once my heart's turned, and instead of love and tenderness, I have nothing but hatred for him. Yes, hatred. I could kill him. Darling Dolly, I understand, but don't torture yourself. You are so distressed, so overwrought, that you look at many things mistakenly. Dolly grew calmer, and for two minutes both were silent. What's to be done? Think for me, Anna. Help me. I have thought over everything, and I see nothing. Anna could think of nothing, but her heart responded instantly to each word, to each change of expression of her sister-in-law. One thing I would say, began Anna. I am his sister. I know his character, that faculty of forgetting everything, everything, she waved her hand before her forehead, that faculty for being completely carried away, but for completely repenting too. He cannot believe it, he cannot comprehend now how he can have acted as he did. No, he understands, he understood, Dolly broke in. But I, you are forgetting me, does it make it easier for me? Wait a minute, when he told me, I will own I did not realise all the awfulness of your position. I saw nothing but him, and that the family was broken up. I felt sorry for him, but after talking to you, I see it, as a woman, quite differently. I see your agony, and I can't tell you how sorry I am for you. Darling, I fully realise your sufferings. Only there is one thing I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much love there is still in your heart for him. That you know whether there is enough for you to be able to forgive him. If there is, forgive him. No, 
Dolly was beginning, but Anna cut her short, kissing her hand once more. I know more of the world than you do, she said. I know how men like Steva look at it. You speak of his talking of you with her. That never happened. Such men are unfaithful, but their home and wife are sacred to them. Somehow or other, these women are still looked on with contempt by them, and do not touch on their feelings for their family. They draw a sort of line that can't be crossed between them and their families. I don't understand it, but it is so. Yes, but he has kissed her. Dolly, hush, darling. I saw Steva when he was in love with you. I remember the time when he came to me and cried, talking of you, and all the poetry and loftiness of his feeling for you. And I know that the longer he has lived with you, the loftier you have been in his eyes. You know we have sometimes laughed at him for putting in at every word. Dolly's a marvellous woman. You have always been a divinity for him, and you are still that. And this has not been an infidelity of the heart. But if it is repeated, it cannot be, as I understand it. Yes, but could you forgive it? I don't know. I can't judge. Yes, I can, said Anna, thinking a moment and grasping the position in her thought and weighing it to her inner balance. She added, Yes. I can, I can, I can. Yes, I could forgive it. I could not be the same. No, but I could forgive it. And forgive it as though it had never been. Never been at all. Oh, of course, Dolly interposed quickly, as though saying what she had more than once thought. Else it would not be forgiveness. If one forgives, it must be completely. Come, let us go. I'll take you to your room, she said, getting up. And on the way, she embraced Anna. My dear, how glad I am you came. It has made things better. Ever so much better.